Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Dr. Jeff McGee, who is a published author. He is the group publisher for Professional Performance Magazine, and he works with international companies helping them achieve peak performance. Jeff, welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Marcus, and thank you for what you do for your audiences as well. My pleasure. Jeff, could you give the audience a couple of minutes on your history and background, tell them how you got to where you are? Great question. So I'm uh, in my mid-50s, and that's an important point of reference in answering your question for our listeners, whatever your age is. You know, what I have found is that a lot of us, when we're young, may have a map in our head of where we want to go and how we want to get there. The reality is if you kind of hit pause and stop at where you are at any given time and look backwards in the rearview mirror of life, as I call it, it's amazing how a lot of times where you thought you were going to go is not even close to where you are. That's what I found with major business leaders, political leaders, true or false? Pretty much. But often that I find is because people don't spend enough time planning and exactly they end up it. becoming part of someone else's plan. And um, that's very true. Very true. And that's why, again, if you kind of stop like I do at midlife and, and then look in reverse, where you accelerate success is starting to recognize if each of our life experiences, as you look in your individual mirror, you can see the linkage in it, then you can start to leverage. You know, I heard many, many decades ago, a person make a comment at the time I heard it, I didn't understand it. Now, again, in reverse, I get it. You know, the smart people that are truly successful. They'll spend their first two-ish decades trying to figure out what the hell they want to do when they grow <laughs> up, you know, as they say. So you do a lot of different things. Then you spend, you know, the next 10 to 20 years getting focused. And then by the time you're 50, if you put that puzzle together, then you're, you're, you're in your peak revenue building years. But if you're smarter, you can accelerate that. And so my background was I went to college to be a journalist, a political science journalist was my major here in the States. That's always my fascination. Before I went to college, I'd already had over a thousand articles published in a major daily newspaper here. So I was way ahead of my curve for what I wanted to do. Jump forward, I got out of college and I'm writing and doing broadcast news in the Midwest, United States of America. One day, I started to recognize journalism back in the 1980s was a very negative, toxic industry made up of very bitter people that did nothing but look at ways to bring other people down. I'm sure journalism today is not that way where you and your listeners are. <laughs> so I left it cold. And so if you're ever unemployed, folks, there is one job always in America, which is part of what Marcus and I play with. It's not the only thing we live with, but there's always one job. It's called a sales job. Now, if you're not good, you may not keep it, but there's always a need for sales. And that's important because sales is the revenue generation of a machine. It's how a business gets into business and stays in business. And sometimes business leaders forget that piece right there. You're either a cost center or you're a profit center. And if you're in sales, you're in a profit center. So if you can take your cost centers and turn those off into profit centers and you accelerate success. So I went into sales. I was working for a Fortune 500 company, went to their national convention, recognized one of their top salesmen in the nation. And about 30, 60 days later, I was fired from that company. And that was the first light bulb moment of recognizing <laughs> that you really do have to cover your own ass on the planet because people have agendas. And if you're not a part of their agenda, there are some very deceitful people on the planet that have no qualm with throwing you under the bus to help themselves. You know, it goes around, does come around. So I went into sales. And so through sales, I started finding lots of opportunities to find a product, a service, a deliverable that I'm excited about and pushing that forward. That then took me into talent development where I am today, which took me into building businesses and selling businesses. And so that's the quick three-minute answer. Brilliant. Okay. So tell me, what are the four most common questions that CEOs ask you? That is a great question. So there are some common questions, but let me put that under kind of an umbrella, if you will. A lot of times CEOs are falling into two camps. You have CEOs that are forward-focused. They can look over the horizon. They have some sort of vision capability. So their questions tend to always focus in on looking at the team they have and how they leverage that, maximize that, accelerate that, and where they're looking at going into other markets. That's actually a very small percentage of the C-suite. Most C-suite, the reality is, whether they have a good thriving business or a surviving business, they're so far in the weeds and in the trenches of today, they're dealing with their current issues and trying to figure out how do I leverage, but they're not looking at how they leverage their human capital. They're looking at leveraging the wrong things. So I a lot of times get asked those kinds of, of categories of questions, which are really half of those are the wrong questions. When you're at the C-suite level of a business where you have 50, 100 employees or more, you shouldn't be stuck in the micro questions, but sometimes you get pulled back into it because it's your passion. You started the business and you know those things. 
But the questions they should be focusing on are not what they typically ask. They typically are asking present tense and very short over the horizon sorts of questions where they should be looking out many years and also looking at who are the competitive threats to the business that are not there today, but will be tomorrow. Well, interestingly enough, that was my next question, which are the three questions they should be asking you. So what they should be asking is questions, which is where I really have lived in developing talent development programs for the C-suite, for management, for emerging leaders. Here in the United States, there's a half a dozen very well-known, entrenched talent development seminar training companies. They're also global. You know, the Career Track seminars, the Fred Pryor seminars, the National seminars, Skill Pass seminars. There's sales training program companies all around the planet as well. There's two or three very big, large ones in that area as well. But what's interesting is that several of those companies, I've developed talent training programs for them over the past 20-ish years. And some of those programs are still selling as current, which is doing a disservice to the marketplace. But I say that to come back to what businesses have to recognize is their number one asset is not what business schools still teach and have taught forever. Business schools talk about assets such as brick and mortar, inventory, cash flow, et cetera. And those are important, absolutely. But your number one asset is what your competition doesn't have right now, and it's harder for them to get right now. And the number one asset of your competition is what you don't have right now, and that's human capital. So what they should be asking is, how do I leverage? I call it 360. How do I leverage the 360 of each person on my team? So, for example, if Marcus, you and I work together, we were part business partners. Before we'd even look at our team, we'd say, wait a second, am I, Jeff McGee, looking at Marcus, number one, for what's 100% of his mental DNA and how are we tapping into it? Because we may not be using the best of Marcus now, but 360 then says, who is in Marcus's universe? Who are all the people you've met from birth to your age today that we could also be connecting with? And most businesses fail right there. And if you look at me, most businesses fail there also. So part of it is what's the 360 connectivity of each person on your team? Second element of human capital is I developed a form of many years ago in coaching and in writing curriculum and building business enterprises, whether it's sales, research and development, accounting, admin, plant management, whatever it is. There's a model I call the player capability index model. And it's one of the tools I detail in one of my college graduate textbooks. And the player capability index model is a formula that helps you look at a person and break them down so you really know what the human capital is you have on your team. It will impact how you leverage, delegate, motivate, how you train, how you do your performance development plans, everything. So the second is people need to objectively, and we're not objective. We're very much subjective people, and we're creatures of habit. So if you can objectively remove all the noise out of your head, your political views out of your head, your biases out of your head, look at people as an asset, you'll be able to leverage them. And then the third and final answer is, in essence, you have to be able to focus on where you're going. So there's another model called the trajectory code model. That's really a major pillar of all of my books and writings and teachings and keynotes and workshops that gives you a way to look at where you are now, where you want to go, where all the steps in between that are positive, that will accelerate you. But more importantly, to be able to recognize all of the steps that could derail you so you guard against them. So those are the questions people should be asked. Very interesting. So looking at it through the lens that I come from, Mike McCallowitz has come up with a beautifully, elegantly simple model, which is the four Ds, which is doing deciding, delegating, and designing. And most CEOs find themselves spending too much time doing. They're not making the strategic decisions alone. They're making small decisions because they haven't learned to delegate and they're spending virtually no time on deciding. And the net result of that is, well, they, they become a bottleneck. And small businesses stay small because the owner keeps them that way. Dealing with the trajectory piece, more often than not, where they're lacking is that they don't plan the behaviors. What they very often do is they've got a spreadsheet with lots of numbers, but you can't work off spreadsheets. You need to understand exactly who needs to do what, when, in what manner, to what standard, how you will measure it, and what sequence they need to be done in. And then this brings us to the third point, which is Gallup's fantastic research around strengths. They've developed psychometric profile called StrengthsFinder 2.0. And if you get a chance to buy the book by Tom Rath, make sure when you go on Amazon, you buy a brand new copy because there's a tear out pin, which is a once only use. And when I restructured all of my work around my strength areas about eight or nine years ago, I moved from 60 to 70% of my working day doing what I love and do best to 95 to 100% every day. And I found people who do the stuff that I'm weak at 
because they're strong at it. So that feeds into your 360 model. I think it's really important that people understand this. If you're leading a company, then your job is to be the keeper and teller of the vision and the story. It's not to spend your time stuck in the weeds making decisions. You need to be able to delegate that and move that down the chain of command and empower people and not punish them for making mistakes. You need to make it clear exactly what is required of them and give them processes and help them design processes so that they can stay on the straight and narrow, but not Absolutely uh, correct. not stifle their creativity. One of the words that, that comes to mind as you're talking, I've created a word called elegation. And elegation <laughs> is one of the observational things I've noticed about successful leaders. Again, you know, through the magazine, I've had a chance to you know interview and actually uh, do some work with Richard Branson and athletic coaches and world leaders and written books with several of them. And successful business people, elegation means you elevate the work level as high as you can in the organization instead of you having to do it. And you delegate as much as you can so you can free yourself up so you can become also a strategic asset to your own business or, or endeavors. So you've got to elegate more effectively. And a lot of businesses don't do it. And you just kind of walk through the daisy chain of what gets us in trouble. I should be stealing that. That's fantastic. Absolutely. <laughs> so I use a triangle a lot of times when I talk about, talk about you know, growing your business. And you talk about, again, identifying what your strengths are. Strength finders is a great tool. Understanding how to connect with your people, whether you use Myers-Briggs or DISC or other instruments. You know, again, when, when you make that comment, Marcus, for our viewers right now, there's a lot of tools out there, which is the point of what we're talking about for your benefit as the viewers right now. What are those tools that you don't have in your mental toolbox that if you can go find them, learn how to use them, and you then started to apply them, it would accelerate your success. And that's really what you have to do. You know, one of the fascinations about you know, Richard Branson is one example is here's a gentleman who has started four different businesses over the past couple of decades. Each one had no connectivity to the previous business, but each one piqued his interest and his passion. So he was able to sell the one he had to completely leave it and go to the next. But the real lesson that everyone misses in this thing about Richard Branson or, or any major business person on the planet for that matter, is that they have found a formula that leads to success. And Branson's perfected a formula of how you can go from a zero to a billion dollar business very quickly by scaling it and having the right people in the right place. So I use a triangle to kind of use an image that's another tool that we all can use both individually and those that we coach or mentor, or lead, or, or manage or sign payroll checks to. And that is inside the triangle, you put a person's name. So I could put Marcus, I could put Jeff, I could put your name as a viewer. And there's three sides of the triangle. You want to grow that person to be as, as successful as possible. Then one of the vertical sides, you have to label that with aptitude. What's the knowledge set that a person has? You're always growing their aptitude. The other vertical side, you can label that one application. The application is going to basically be the use of that knowledge and experiences in University of Hard Knocks. A lot of times we train people and give them aptitude, knowledge, skills, certifications, but we don't give them a chance to do it. You just talked about give people chances to do things and even fall on their face. Just don't make the same mistake twice. And the baseline of that model is attitude. And attitude is mindset and passion and work ethic and dedication and commitment. So if you look at the three A's, you talked about four D's. I had to drop my four A's on you. So my three A's basically is aptitude, application, and attitude. You study any successful person back to Marcus, your revelation of 95 to 100% of doing what I'm best at because we're able to fit those sides together, folks. You shouldn't spend your entire life trying to figure these things out. So let's look at recruitment because I see recruitment as a leader and a manager's number one objective and responsibility. Why is recruitment so poor? In sales, we see this revolving door. They hire James Bond at interview, turns into Mr. Bean the minute they're on payroll, and then they blame the salesperson when I think it, the responsibility is at the manager's feet. Why Absolutely. are they so bad at recruiting? So let's just stay really focused as I answer this question. We're talking about revenue generating personnel, so salespeople, because again, yeah. I would give a similar answer, but a little bit different depending upon which silo in a business we're in. So just answering sales. sales. One, yeah. a lot of times what happens is that people that are hiring salespeople don't truly understand what the DNA is of a good successful salesperson. So first I would say, you sit down and write down, what's the DNA of a great salesperson? Go back to my player capability index formula, folks. That model clearly defines what makes for a successful person. Now, if you apply it to salespeople and you think about what's the knowledge set, what's the experience set, what's the behavioral patterns as you talked about, 
what really are the habit patterns? So if you think about the first answer is no one clearly defines the DNA. Second, we then don't look at salespeople the same way we should look at every professional. Here's how you raise the bar on everybody. So if I was hiring a lawyer, if I was hiring a CPA, if I was hiring an engineer, if I was hiring a doctor, one of the things that's interesting about those professions is that the consumer that goes to those people expects them to have ongoing professional development and to be at the top of their game mentally what they do. They even have to have a license to do what they do to be street legal. And they keep that license every year. They have to always be going back to school, whether it's online webinars or to a classroom, self-study. So they're always keeping up with what's going on. There's a minimum amount of knowledge set they have to gain every year. I just sold a multi-million dollar training company here in the United States. That that's the space it's in. So in salespeople, we don't treat it the same way. But if you study the most successful salespeople, they're always reading books and blogs and blogs and going to podcasts. And, and they might even be doing skill development issues. So for them, it is critically important. So second, you want to hire a salesperson. When you onboard them, you should have ongoing training that they're engaged in. One for the product knowledge of what your company's about, the history, the product knowledge of your deliverable, the product knowledge as relates to your customers, your best avatar, et cetera. Most companies don't do that. So that puts them on the wrong trajectory and heads them towards failure. There's no ongoing training in terms of skill development, you know, what you, part of what your company does in mind or communication or negotiation, et cetera. So first mistake, they don't know the DNA they're after. Second, they don't treat them like a profession and raise the bar when they hire them from day one, which keeps them focused on success. Third reason they're not successful. Here's another magic formula. So I'm sharing with your viewers right now a $100,000 secret. Minimum. Successful salespeople, as in any other part of a business, there's a formula I use for successful salespeople. It's called WP plus F equals ROI. WP plus F equals ROI. So if you want to hire a successful salesperson, you first stop and say, do I even have one of these human beings on my staff? Let's say that's yes. You sit down and look at the most successful salesperson in your team. WP stands for work product. If you sat down and said, what's the work product? What do they do Monday through Friday from eight to five or whatever the days and work hours of when they work? And you wrote down all of the work products. That's your first drill. Then you go back, the, the plus F, F is frequency. Then you would ask, how often do you do that work product or how many times do that work product in a second, in a minute, in an hour, in a day, in a week, in a month, in a quarter? You create the formula that generates the ROI. Now I'm giving you a blueprint. What I have found in my 30 years of sales, sales leadership, and working with business owners is 99.9% .9 of every business and person I've been around does not comprehend WP plus F equals ROI, except the very small 1% of the super magnificent successful people. So there's your next huge clue. I can go on and on, but that's the three reasons why we hire people that suck. Okay, well, taking this a little bit further, when we teach people to recruit, we use a model called search. Skills, experience, attitudes, beliefs, and values, historical results, cognitive abilities, and habits. And you've pointed to the number one issue, which is habits. It's repeated behaviors done consistently without excuse and without any avoidance. Attitudes, beliefs, and values comes next. But many people expect that they need to get their attitude right before they do the behavior. But what we know is that behavior drives attitude. If you're waiting for your attitude to be right, you're going to be waiting for a cold day in hell. And then cognitive ability is your ability to learn, adapt, to be resilient and bounce back. Because without that, when Darwin was talking about survival of the fittest, he wasn't talking about the brawniest. He was talking about those that could adapt best to the current environment. And I see this a lot, and you touched on it right at the beginning of the conversation, that a lot of people are stuck in their ways. When they say they have 20 years experience, what they really mean is they've got one year's experience 20 times over, yeah. and they haven't adapted. Buyers are savvier now than ever. They're better informed. And whilst sales is still critically important, we as salespeople need to adapt and understand that buyers are behaving, business-to-business -business buyers are behaving much more like business-to-consumer buyers. And because they're adopting consumer behaviors, we need to establish a really good understanding early. And this is why prospecting is so important, because if you're not prospecting, then you'll be dragged in at the point where they're 60% of the way through their buying process. And you need to be in early. And one of the things I see happen all the time, and I put this at the feet of management. Again, I'll explain why I don't blame them, but 
managers allow salespeople to avoid prospecting. And because they're avoiding prospecting, then they don't have a pipeline. It's weak, empty, or inconsistent. So they need everything, which means that at the end of the month, at the end of the quarter, at the end of the year, they end up selling at fire sales because buyers have become savvy and understand that if they wait long enough, they can get a cheaper deal. But I think that's a mistake on both sides because if all the deals are bunching at the end of the sales period, then the people you're going to get working on your project or whoever's available, you're not necessarily going to get the best. And a lot of salespeople are afraid. I had a conversation at lunchtime today with a client looking at the next stage, and uh, we were talking about why they deliver their fees at 25% instead of 35%. And his response was, well, they can go somewhere else. Well, that just tells me that there's a lack of salesmanship. And there's it's a value. Lot of you hit it right in the head. You're looking at what you do as a transaction and a commodity. If you can show value, then that number can go up significantly and people will pay it. Think about it. Why does someone buy a Ferrari? Why does someone buy a Rolls Royce? Why does someone buy fill in the blank? Everyone needs a vehicle to get from A to B, whether they're renting it, Ubering it, or they buy it. But if you see the perceived value, then you're going to go that extra mile. If you don't, then it's just a transaction. You've hit it right on the head and people miss that. And part of it goes back to your recruiting. I mean, here in the United States, I can't speak for globally as detailed as I'd like to. I can because I've got global clients. But what I mean is that I grew up in the United States and we may be perceived to some people as, you know, that shining city on the hill and I have all these great things going on. Set that to the side. Here's the reality. In the United States, mediocrity, pathetic, worthless, lazy mediocrity is considered to be a great employee in this country because we have lowered the performance bar on everything, not raised the bar. Performance of using companies, when I go into them, I radically blow those damn things up because if a CEO really wants to move his company forward, he or she has to realize, what are we measuring? And there's only three ways to measure performance. If you want to make this real freaking simple, there's only three ways. One, are you doing 100% of the job description I put on the table in front of you? And if you are, there's only one measurement. You're meeting expectations. So ask a salesperson, what were your goals last year? Did you meet that? Yes, then you met expectations. Did you not meet them? No. Then again, if you're not meeting 100% of a job description, you have to score the person as not meeting expectations. So then someone says, well, how do I get exceeds? Well, here's 100% of what I expect. Knock it out of the ballpark and go beyond this. I have to score you as exceeding. And we don't ask simple questions. We talk about, for example, in sales and businesses, you know, when we sit in executive meetings, we talk about what's the percentage of the marketplace we have. That's the wrong mentality. Back to what are the wrong questions, the right questions. What's the market share of sales training markets you have in London? Who gives a shit? That's the wrong question, to be really blunt. Market share is a defeatist mindset, and that's what holds businesses back. But it's an easy KPI to cover your butt as a business leader or sales manager and say, well, the team didn't make the number and I did everything I could. Therefore, I'm good and need a pay raise, but they don't get one wrong. The team doesn't make it. You don't make it. What we should be measuring is market opportunity. There's 100% opportunity in a marketplace. Who's fighting over what piece? That's the market share. But look at the larger percentage that no one's playing with. The market opportunities where entrepreneurs live. Market opportunities where emerging markets are. Market opportunity is where you're going to have higher profits. Market opportunity. If you look at your best customers and you stratify those down to who are my best, who are the okay, and who are the ones that if I lose them, I could give a crap less. You look at your best customers and you sit down with what their business model is. What's their business mission statement for the next three years? Do they have a business plan where they want to be in the next one year, three or five years? Sit down with those other executives, find out where they want to go. And if you can show ways you can help them to get there, you can have a better relationship where everything today is becoming about transactions. And that's where you have market opportunity. I got excited, yes, but that's what you got to find in the people on your team as a salesperson. Who can be as excited as you about what they're doing? I worked for a company years ago where their top salesperson made more money than the CEO of the business. And the CFO one day made that comment to him, and he goes, no, you're missing the whole point. If my number one salesperson gets a great base paycheck, but they're primarily driven by commission, and his commission checks add up to more net money than what I'm making and I own the company, that's a good thing because he's making it happen, which means it's less for me to do. People don't get this. They focus on the wrong thing. Absolutely. Well, that then brings me to a couple of other points. A friend of mine, one of his friends got fired from a BMW dealership because the dealer principal realized that the top salesperson was earning more than him. And that kind of idiocy happens all the time. CFOs are cutting top salespeople's paycheck capping, and so on. So those are acts of idiocy that really need to be stamped out. 
you touched on something else as well, which I'm exploring at the moment. I haven't quite formulated my thought, which is the negative power of labeling. I think when we label something or someone or an opportunity, what we tend to do is blinder ourselves. So we blink ourselves and we prevent our imagination from seeing what's possible. And all we see is what's probable. So again, it's very easy to fall into the trap of labeling someone as not having experience in our sector. Because you touched on job descriptions. And my experience, I worked in recruitment for 10 years. I've been recruiting for 30 years. And job descriptions are generally worth the price of toilet paper. Because they're not written from the lens of, one, you as a business leader, you asked that question earlier, Marcus. So as a business leader, what do you need functionality-wise out of that position in your organization? Because you can't answer it. You shouldn't be hiring a person with nothing for them to do. And again, people say, well, you should have job descriptions. You know, that's just a bullshit statement coming out of the mouth of an idiot that's never signed in front of a payroll check. Every time you hire someone on your team, you've got to give them some sort of game plan of what the hell they do. Call it a position statement, expectations, whatever. But that job description should be answering a couple of things. And one, what's the senior most leader need that functionality of that person to do? That should be inscribed. But you go to the person who's your rock star in that role that you have or have ever had and say, write down what you did, what you do, what you need to be responsible for to be successful. And if I got things written down, this bullshit, scratch them out, pardon my language, and hold me accountable. But you're right. They're not real time. They're not updated. And I find that as a true statement globally with any business I've gone to, either they don't have them or they're outdated or they don't make sense. How can anyone perform up to expectations as a minimum if you don't tell me what they are? You have to have those. Then you can say sky's the limit from there. Knock the ball out of the park. So what we teach is that you need a hiring template. Bingo. Looking at the predictors of success. Bingo. You need to do exit interviews and actually use what you learn from it. I love you. Everything that most people don't do. Absolutely. And because what they tend to do is they're not recruiting up. They're recruiting to fill a vacancy. And I put this down to a couple of things. One is they don't know how to hire. And that's because managers are generally taken from being a top producer. And then suddenly they're tapped on the shoulder and say, Jeff, congratulations, you are one. And they're not given a runway. And I have a real bee in my bonnet about this. I think that what you should be doing is at the interview and selection process, identifying those who have management aspirations. You need to assess them using psychometric profiling and you need to put them onto a runway of anywhere between 12 and 18 months where they start taking on management responsibilities. So that allegation piece where they start to interview, they start to run forecasting and sales meetings, where they mentor, they coach, and they start learning those skills on the job so that by the time they're promoted into the position, then you've got somebody who's capable at Sandler, we did a research paper on hiring and what we've done and management. And what we discovered was that only 6% of managers are qualified for the position in sales. And it's the most difficult and precarious job there is in management. And it is because salespeople are very elastic. Almost every position in a company can be very structured. It is very much, in essence, a clear pathway of do's and don'ts and etc. But to be successful in sales, you need a little bit of a differing personality than what most other jobs would hold. To be successful in sales, you need a person who understands how to be a solo practitioner, but also knows how to be a part of a team. To be successful in sales, it really is a ton about getting off your butt and you've got to execute. You've got to make things happen. And so you're absolutely right with that. That a lot of organizations, they try to use the wrong template here. Um, they don't have success. You know, there's a there's an organization called Sales Drive here in Chicago, uh, Illinois, USA. It's the only organization I've ever come across where they actually have uh, created an onboarding diagnostic. You know, we have DISC and we have Myers-Briggs and we have Hogan and we have Strength Finders and we have True Colors, and all kinds of assessments. But they have really spent a ton of time doubling down on what are the behavioral traits, what are the characteristics of successful salespeople. And they have a phenomenal tool and instrument that, that I reference because it supports what I've been writing in my sales books and in my training programs for decades, like by yourself, Marcus. But if you're going to hire someone who's successful in sales, and this could be a trait you can carry in lots of other areas, but not all other areas. But in sales, every truly successful salesperson is competitive. 
They have an internal competitive DNA streak, whether it is they like to compete with themselves or they like to compete with other people. So if you want someone to truly be successful in sales and they're not really a competitive person, you're hiring someone that's going to be, in essence, a survivor, not a thriver in that area. Second is not only do they like competition, but they like challenges. They love the challenge. They like the bar being raised, not unrealistically, but they love that challenge. And again, in some other places in a business, that may hold true, but not in all others. So you're right. When you start talking about salespeople, we make the mistakes in hiring because we tend to hire people that we like, not predicated on the data we need them to perform if we hire them. One of my clients just this week, as we're recording, is a $500 million organization. They have a five-year plan to be a billion-dollar company. They're on trajectory to be there. And they've just hired their first recruiter to work in their company. Well, the first thing I sat down with once they hired what I believe was the best applicant we could find was that title recruiter is the wrong word to be using. We want to set them up for success so they convey the right message to the marketplace they're going to go out to. And it's really about talent acquisition. So again, I don't care if you call them lead or director or vice president or whatever, but it's about talent acquisition. So when you use the word talent, it takes us to what you and I are talking about right now for our audience right now. How do you define talent? How do you spell talent? What do you want that talent to do? Then acquisition is how do you go about getting them? Sometimes you may have to do a compensation package different for that person than other people because, again, what the value is they're going to bring to the organization. And I do believe in paying people a great premium to bring them onto your team. But in sales and in some other places, but in sales, I believe a part of the compensation formula is going to be a percentage of the revenue they generate for the company. So if there's an opportunity for them to make obscene numbers in revenue generation, you're going to not only get talent, but you're going to be able to keep them, which is the second side of recruitment, which is retention. You get great people and treat them great, and they always see opportunity. They're not going to leave you very fast. I I hate to pop people's bubble by saying that. I agree. I, I challenge one thing that I believe salespeople should be measured on profit, not revenue. Otherwise, ah, great catch. Yes. Uh, great Yoda in the sky. You're correct. There's a huge difference between revenue and profits. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, I think a lot of recruitment around sales is misguided because they have a one size fits all. I interviewed Mike Weinberg recently, which was just a gem of an interview. He's wonderful. And he talked about zookeepers rather than farmers. Most salespeople are zookeepers. Basically, they're order takers at best. And then you have farmers. Farmers will grow an account. And then you have hunters. And you have hunters that go out with a shotgun. And you have hunters that go out with a sniper rifle. And these are very differently wired people. They need different compensation plans. And the compensation will drive the behavior. What you measure happens. What you don't doesn't. And too often, the KPIs, the measurements, are on lag indicators, not leading indicators. They're not focused on behavior. And you made a great point about onboarding. In the first four months, a company called SRC in the UK did some research about 12, 15 years ago, but it still holds true. In the first four months, the first 120 days, the new hire is putting the employer on probation. Is my boss an ass? Is this the job I was sold? Do I like the people? Was I better off where I was? Do I like the customers? Can I be successful in this role? And even veterans need an onboarding process. And they like the clarity and the structure and the laissez-faire management. Uh, And it's actually management by abdication, which is they say, I've just hired a big boy. I'm going to let him get on with it because I don't want to be a peer and micromanager. And within six months, they're starting to interfere because they didn't do their job in the first place. And I put this down to another problem, which is player managers. I have never seen a player manager work out. Player managers are people who sell and carry a personal production target, and they're meant to be managing their team. But when shit hits the fan, they will focus their attention on their personal production target, and they will let the management drop. And the first thing they drop is recruitment, which should be a daily activity, building the bench. They need to build the bench because they don't want to take 16 weeks to fill an open vacancy. They want to take one month, which is the salesperson's notice period because they've got five to 10 people lined up on the bench, all of whom are happy to take the job and qualified for it. So all they have to do is phone up their bench and say, do you want the job? No. Do you want the job? No. Do you want the job? Yes. And now they put their notice in and a month later, they have a new starter. They need to do the exit interview with the person leaving. 
and they need to adjust the hiring template to adjust for what the job really is instead of what it was two years ago when you hired the person who didn't work out and or you hired somebody who's been poached um, because you didn't do a good enough job of looking after them and keeping them. All the time, what we're seeing is people focused on firefighting, and it comes back to those four Ds, and they end up spending all the time doing and making low-level decisions that they should have delegated, and what they should have done is trained their managers. Now, why is it that CEOs spend less than 5% of the global training budget on training managers. That's crazy. So here's how I would equate it. If you think of, and for our viewers today, think of a triangle. And you think of one triangle, and then we're going to put a second triangle on top of the first triangle. So the first one is drawn out the way you normally would put it. But then if you flip it, so the point at the one at the top is pointing to the one at the bottom. So it looks like an hourglass. You got it. There we're going. So the triangle on the bottom is how 99% of all organizations look at professional development, talent development, training development, whatever you want to call it, back to your questions, I'm answering it. So you take that triangle and you break it into three levels to be real simple and easy. The bottom of the triangle is going to be tactical. The middle of that triangle is going to be operational. The top of that triangle is going to be strategic. So disproportionately, all organizations have been conditioned to spend the majority of their time, money, resources, and energy on training at the tactical level because that's compliance training. It's mandated training. It's covering your butt legally training. It's all the SOP training. So that is a whole bandwidth SOP? standard operating procedures. So people right. know how to work the manufacturing machine yeah. or plant uh, you know, seeds in a field or sell something at the counter. So that's how everyone's been conditioned. In businesses that have training departments and entities, disproportionately, all of the resources goes right to that level. So that's frontline employees, rank and file, functioning jobs, all of that tactical. Now, above tactical is operational. That's first levels of management, leadership, supervisory, those sort of titles. So now we start doing a little bit less training on how to be an effective manager because now it is we're training you, thus train the trainer, on how to train tactically everything below. You're right. So we screw that up. Then strategic is where your senior leaders live. And so the higher up in this model you go, the less time you actually start spending doing some of the training things that we need to do. And so that's what gets us in trouble now. At that strategic level at the very top, you're now so focused on bigger things typically eating up your time. You don't have time to be a visionary and think strategically and go to best practice workshops or symposiums or even bring in like, for example, I've got a program called the Leadership Academy of Excellence. It's a program I designed years ago off of working with 32 Fortune 100 companies where I take into an organization and work with that senior band a leadership development track, and it's been wildly successful here. So we don't spend a lot of time and money there where we should. Now, what happens is that that's almost all businesses are set up. So there's one answer to your question. All the energy is focused down here. So that's why we spend very little time in the middle and up here because all of our money is going in the wrong direction because we also are having terrible recruiting and retention. So it's always having turnover issues, which consumes more time, money, and energy at that bottom tactical level. When that triangle flips up to the top where the, you have now the, the hourglass, you now have strategic is first, then you're going to have operational, then there's going to be tactical. When we promote people into leadership, what's interesting is that the first things we should be teaching them are skill sets on how to be a strategic leader. So big picture. Then we should be spending even more time on operationally, how to operationally elegate, as we talked about earlier, delegate, empower, train, develop, find cutting edges, retool all of our processes. And then at the very top, tactically, are we really helping our people to be able to be the best they can be. And so we spend even less time as we go up where that model helps us to see we should be spending more time growing them. You know, Barack Obama was elected president here in the United States years ago. One of the things he did that really uh, piqued my interest was he was going to create a new cabinet level position, basically a chief learning officer for the United States of America. And the intent would be he was thinking of his cabinet like he was the CEO of a major global corporation. And his C-suite then is basically each of these cabinet people. And the top 30 Fortune 100 corporations globally have a chief learning officer. Fascinating that chief learning officer's number one customer is the senior bench of the company. They may have hundreds, if not thousands of employees in their downline, but they've got other people way down here that worry about the tactical training programs. The CLO is not dealing with that crap. And operational training, they're not dealing with that. They're focused on strategic. 
So I thought it was a great idea. I even had people from around the world and around the United States sending me emails going, oh my God, McGee, you should apply for this job. It's perfect for you. I said, no, it is DOA. It is dead on arrival. And I said, why is that? I go, think about it. There is no way you have the huge egos we have in the United States. They're all going to be appointed to cabinet level positions that are going to come together on a regular basis for ongoing senior leadership development. It's not going to happen. And that's exactly what happened there. It blew up. So the answer to why we disproportionately spend money in energy, we're conditioned to look down, not look up. And no one has the guts to put the foot down and say, no, we're going to focus on the top. And I'm going to be in the room with you because there's needs I have to grow myself as human capital. Great catch. So this takes me to another really interesting subject. I'm reading a couple of books at the moment that really sparked my fury as well as my curiosity. One is awesome. called Dark Money. Another one is Moneyland. And it's how the... I'm not making a political point here, but how a few very wealthy people have managed to hijack the political narrative um, globally. And globally. And as a result of that, very clever, what they've been able to do is move politics to the right and create conditions where turkeys are basically mm -hmm. voting for Christmas. They're voting against their self-interest because the narrative has been changed. And it's really fascinating to see just how powerful it is when you have leaders who are absolutely committed and are willing to make the investment and play the long game. And while I don't condone what they've done, I can only admire it in terms of how effective it's been because they've managed to essentially hijack the political narrative. They've also managed to put their people in place and create the environment where anybody who opposes them is basically living in fear of losing their seat. And as a result, they come up against almost zero resistance. But to have a leader in a business, I'm not talk talking about someone who's an autocrat, but to have leaders who are brave enough to make those investments and contract with their investors, that we are going to change the way we do business. We are going to create a learning culture that believes in certain values and works towards this objective, which is the big picture, to follow through on this vision. And it's so tough for leaders because obviously they have to satisfy shareholders and they're being scrutinized. Uh, absolutely. But you've said two things that are important. I think the common person on the street of the planet today is not dumb, but they've allowed themselves to become ignorant because they don't know how to think anymore. And if you don't know how to think, you don't have common sense that cause you to question anything you read, see, or hear. And so you're exactly right in terms of that. You know, again, successful business leaders have to satisfy immediate needs. Obviously, I've got payroll twice a month. I have to satisfy some immediate needs. But the success is really going to be down the road over that long haul having the vision you talked about. And you're right. There are some very powerful forces on both sides of the political spectrum on the planet that have figured out how to garner that by manipulating malleable people. And in business, you've got to make sure you're not hiring someone who's going to be passive aggressive and work against you. In business, you have to be careful that you're not, in essence, aligning yourself with, in essence, partnerships or alliances or mm -hmm. any other uh, you know, collaborations. Their agenda is not your agenda because it can take you down. I do a lot of work in the pharmaceutical space, the biotech space, aviation, agra. You know, in 2001, here in the United States, we had the, you know, the Twin Towers that were attacked. And the business lesson I got out of that was I had a lot of colleagues in the consulting space, training space speaking at conventions and doing keynotes on stages, all that space where I live, that basically all went out of business. And a couple of them were calling me saying, hey, you're still doing pretty damn good. What's going on? And what I didn't realize, now I do, and it's been a very conscious business model for 20 years, is that they had all their eggs in one basket. So they might be working with Pfizer Pharmaceuticals with a training and development entity. But if that training and development entity after 9-11 said, freeze, we're not doing any more cancel contracts, but Pfizer is actually multiple little pharma companies made up underneath of that name. And I had inroads in each of those working with business leaders and sales leaders and doing training. I was able to you know, you know, sustain that tough time. But within that, you know, again, you talk about not paying attention. There are world leaders that are also playing that game. China has a business plan called 2025. And people need to look at any business that they're working with or wanted to work with. If they're a major company, they all have an annual report. If you download any major business's annual report, 
It'll tell you three things to help you to, to compete against them or to sell to them if you're trying to become a business partner with them. The annual business plan talks about past tense, where they've been, present tense, where they are, and where they're going. And if you look at those three, you'll always see a trend. And if you can help them to speak that trend, you have potentials to do business. You know, China basically says, you know, it's not just about bombs and traditional warfare of what it used to be for the past 100 years on our planet. You're there in the UK, so you know even more so horrifically than, you know, any of our viewers, you're 30% that are in the United States. So again, China is very smart saying, wait a second, if right now over 80% of all pharmaceutical medications are made in China, people have let their guard down and said, well, wait a second, they actually control what I ingest. And then you look at food products, you look at manufacturing of commodities. They're very smart at what they're doing. It's not necessarily a war of bombs and guns. I can dominate by other elements. So when you talk so about you, know, that, you guys, when you talk about politics, just getting into politics, I love that and respect that. And again, I'm not saying anything pro or con about China, but they're very smart at how they're playing the future game. And if you're going to be successful as a salesperson listening to this right now, you've got to be selling in the present tense, yes, but your success is the future game. And if I'm a business leader, I got to be taking care of right now, yes, but what's the future game? And people well, don't think long-term at all. Long-term planning for most of the damn planet is dinner tomorrow night. I interviewed Chris Stanham a couple of weeks ago, and he made a really valid point, which is that you need to prospect for at least five years hence. And uh, if you look at China, China operates on 100-year plans. The end of the Korean War, the American delegation rented three floors on, of the Hilton for three months. The Chinese delegation rented a five-bedroom house for three years. Who was going to win the, that negotiation? They were yeah. playing the long game. And people in business, I think, are too short-term, too transactional. They're driven by quarterly reporting. And that is, I think, going to be our downfall. That's why. And, and they the are because, again, dominate. back to our point a minute ago, people don't think anymore or they have forgotten yeah. how to think or they've been trained. You know, you and I are doing this program via the Internet. You know, when the Internet came out in the 90s, most people thought it was a fad. Maybe some uh -huh. businesses might use it, but it surely wouldn't catch on. Well, today it's a major business channel. But the mistake people make is they think the Internet is the only channel and it's not. Uh -huh. Selling, you know, your goods in small village or small town, you know, UK, you know, Berlin, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, where I live or whatever, selling your, you know, your goods from Main Street USA, as they would say here in my side of the planet, is no different than the internet. You still have to have a, you know, something that appeals. You have to have a deliverable someone wants and you have to be able to give it to them the way they want to stay in business. The problem with the internet, to your question, is that there is a large group of people making a ton of noise on the internet that are always out there yelling, here's how you can get rich and here's how you can make money. But what's fascinating is typically the only people making money on that yelling match are the ones trying to sell you on how to make money on the internet. It's, it's not, the people selling the shovels. Yeah. Give me 10 people that you've actually done your work with that are selling a tangible and tangible that are more profitable today because of you than without you. And no one ever returns a phone call. So you're right. People got to stay focused on what matters and not get distracted by all the noise that's out there because success is not where the noise is. It's in focus. It's in short-term and long-term focus. I'm minded of the Mark Twain quote, which is, you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. Absolutely uh, love that. Absolutely Mark, love that. Him and Oscar Wilde, I think, were two of the best observers of the human condition. In Let's your mind to grow. Let's finish off on this topic because you just touched on it. Nothing's really changed. The basics of selling haven't changed. The media has. The means by which you can get to and speak to and engage with prospects has Absolutely. evolved. But at the end of the day, it's your job to identify people who have problems that you can fix and find those who are both willing and able to change because that's all we ever sell. You and I and everyone on the planet who's in sales sells one thing, which is change. And Woodrow Wilson said it beautifully, which is, if you want to make enemies, recommend change. Everyone says that change is required, but no one really wants to change. And our job, salesmanship, is about helping them realize why they want and are willing and are both willing and able to change. And our job is to find people who fit both criteria. If they're willing but not able, then you may be able to get them to make the change. But if they're able but not willing, you're going to be pushing rope uphill. So... Why is there such dependence 
and a massive investment in technologies around sales enablement where the basics just haven't been taken care of. Because everyone is getting distracted on where they think the future fast buck is going to be. And part of that technology advancement, though, though, goes back up is a key issue. There are certain geographies on the planet where political leadership is being taken over by people that have never worked for a living. They have no mental calluses on their hand. They have no mental calluses in their brain. They have no calluses for ever doing anything. And these people that are being elected have these great ideas, which are great if you can afford them on basically social change you're trying to engineer. So they're trying to say you have to pay someone a, a ridiculous amount of money per hour for their job, even though it doesn't dictate that. And you've got to give them all these quality of life benefits, even though the business isn't designed to be able to pay for that. And because of that, that's what people don't understand. And so technology. So let's go to fast food. If McDonald's can figure out a way to do French fries without a human being having to touch that line or to make a hamburger without having a way to have a human being do it, therefore they can now have technology that can do that. They can now eliminate X number of people that they're paying 10 or 20 or 30 or $40 an hour for, that's how you save money. People don't realize that an hourly worker's paycheck is not that number. I've got another client here in the United States that's in a manufacturing space. So they, in essence, were having some people that were you know, going to want to strike. And basically, the, the uh, elder leaders of the company pulled the whole team together, showed them the financials of the book, and they were very transparent. And that eliminated the union energy instantly because people then realized, holy crap, I never realized how much money it cost me to get my paycheck. So again, that person who's making 30 or 40 or 50 or $60 an hour, when they looked at their health benefits and the retirement packages and the other things, I mean, it was well over in essence, $100 an hour, but no one ever saw that in their paycheck. So they thought, you know, the company is rich. Another entry-level job in the United States or some other research did a forty-six dollars to $54,000 a year job actually costs an employer roughly $101,000 on the backside. People don't realize those things. So because of all those numbers, and here in the United States, the stupidity of our healthcare system is such that in the last eight years, our former president, who never worked in his entire life, blew up our healthcare system and made a major mockery out of it. I was paying, for example, around $100 a month for my insurance after, in essence, the debacle. I'm paying almost $1,000 a month for my insurance. That's a game changer. People are going out of business because of that. Healthcare products are being eliminated. I live in a part of the United States where as an individual now today, I can't even get insurance in my state because there's no insurance company with a little play there. So those are examples, fact-based examples as to why businesses are now looking at technology. If I can find a way to use technology that can help me to become more profitable down the road, that's why people are jumping. Now, that may not be the complete truth, but that's exactly why a lot of people are looking at technology. So also, last answer, manufacturing is all about technology. So it only makes sense if I'm a business leader, that if there's parts of my business that technology is my SOP, my norm, how I operate, how I'm most efficient, how I make money, that if there's other parts of my business where I'm not using technology, can I perhaps start to use technology to do a better job at prospecting or follow-up or lead generation or et cetera, et cetera. So great question, but people are not being fair to business owners on this issue of technology and innovation. Okay, I'm not going to get sucked into the whole like, debate around whether we should have a social health system like a national health service. Because yeah, just and, and not that was not my point. Yeah, everyone. Not my I, point. I know, I'm I know. just saying for us, because of that cost factor, it's blown up how we normally do business. So you're exactly right. If we're going to do it, let's find a way to do it. But if we're not going to find a way to do it, don't push that burden on the business owner. That's what's important yeah. for everyone to hear right now. The business owner, everyone needs to hear that. I don't give a crap about your gender, your yeah. ethnicity, or your religious or political views. If you push unexpected expenses onto a business owner that's not a part of their business model, then that business has to find a way to address it by merging, going out of business, or making a change. So, Marcus, you asked a very profound question. My question, again, I'd like to just dig a little bit deeper. What I see is instead of focusing on the basics of making sure that salespeople know how to prospect, how to disqualify out and qualify in, how to move stuff through the pipeline with sufficient velocity, how to have business conversations instead of turn up and do the usual show and tell and then follow up with a proposal and then spend 80% of their time chasing. They're throwing money at technology, which is brilliant. These sales enablement technologies are fantastic, but they're only useful 
if you've got salespeople who know the basics of selling. And it starts with having managers who know how to train and coach and develop their people. Absolutely. Or they have the intellectual humility to bring externals in. If you adjust the systems, you have to have processes and procedures that align into that and make sense. And you can use AI all day long to adjust things. If I'm looking at using technology because I'm in a simple transactional selling process, then there's a greater likelihood I can do that and start to eliminate the human touch points and become more efficient in the long run and become more profitable. Absolutely. If I'm selling an involved sell or if I'm selling where I need a relationship to be built, then I can use technology as a part of that touch point, but I've yeah. got to get my human equation connected ASAP. And you're Absolutely. exactly right. Lead generation, you know, I can give you massive lead flow, but if your systems and people don't know how to engage and do discovery and do qualifying and disqualifying and make the sell and the sell after sell and all those elements, you're right. It's, it's going to lead to market implosion. So you've got to be smart with where you're using it and why you're using it. Jeff, thank you. We've come to the top of the hour. So three final questions. Who or what is influencing you in terms of what you're reading, listening to, or watching? Or something that's a good book that you read in your history that you think, yeah, this is a great book to recommend? Yeah, great question. So I'm going to answer that by giving your listeners a formula because that's going to do them more good down the road. I am turned on right now and I'm reading a lot of different books by people that have actually done that which they've written on. There's a whole lot of charlatans out there, folks, that are really good at self-marketing and make themselves look like a great one-hit wonder but they haven't done a damn thing. So that's one. I'm reading a lot of books by people that have struggled, they're successful, they've dealt with reality problems and they're bouncing back. That's one. Two, I think that I'm, I'm also watching blogs and podcasts and, and just one-on-one interactions. I'm always looking at what am I doing and who, in my estimation, is significantly greater than me. That's who I want to be benchmarking off. If I don't want to benchmark off of equal and below, I want to always be raising my bar. Okay. So let me ask you the next question then. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Jeff, age 23, how to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage, what advice would you give him? Be very judicious in what you say to people. Realize everyone has an agenda, and quite often their agenda is not your agenda. So don't be foolish and you know give all your secrets to someone else, and then they'll use you. There's a small number of people on the planet you'll ever be able to call truly your friends, your advisors, your advocates that you can trust, and you can trust them blindly with the keys to your house, and etc. Unfortunately, I am a huge optimist, so don't mishear me. The reality is, though, is that there is a lot of disingenuous energy out there. And I would have told me that at age 23 would have saved a lot of pain and a lot of uh, misused energy. <laughs> Good advice. Okay. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? My biggest struggle, I think, is a struggle that you and I and players at our level always struggle with. And that is really finding that people that want to be successful and say they want to be successful are two different demographics. A lot of CEOs, a lot of salespeople, a lot of people may say, I want to be more successful. And you may actually have a golden ticket to help them. But unless they really want to be successful, saying it doesn't mean crap. And so I'm struggling with separating all the people who say they want to be an achiever versus the ones that really want to do the work to become an achiever. That's interesting. I mean, I come across this a lot. And what I've realized is that the first thing you have to do is deny that they want it. If they fight for it, then there's a probability that it's real. And you have to take it away from them. So you can say to them, Jeff, you're saying all the right things, but how you're saying it suggests to me that you're not really committed. Are you bacon or egg on this? Chickens involved, the pig's committed. Are you bacon or egg? And it's very rare that people who say that they want it, intellectually, they think they want it. But at a gut level, they're afraid, they're limited in their beliefs, they're not committed. And I want to disqualify those people out as quickly as possible. So deny their pain and deny their commitment. And just tell them, look, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not convinced. Convince me. And see if they fight for it. Because very often their fight is just, it fizzles out with the first pushback. Sharon really wants to be there. Absolutely. And the other thing is skin in the game. What I've found is that if, they genuinely want my help. They are willing to find the money. And so always charge premium. And if they don't flinch when you put your price down, then you, first of all, you haven't asked for enough. And secondly, that chances are they're not going to value it as much. So 
make sure that you're putting them in the driving seat and you're making sure that they contract with you. And this is another really important part of what I've learned over the years, which is that you need to have people volunteer. They have to contract and you have to, re, uh, you have to develop your skill at Absolutely. the art of mutual agreement. So it has to be good for you. It has to be good for them. There must be clarity. It must be clear, specific, and certain in your terms. And there must be mutual agreement, mutual acceptance, mutual understanding, mutual comfort, and mutual commitment. And if you can't get all of those, then you cannot enforce the contract. And that filtering process filters out 95% of the tire kickers and time wasters. So excellent. Jeff, thank you so much. This has been thank really you. enlightening. How can people get hold of you? Two ways. One, you can go to my website, which is jeffreymcgee.com, just as it's spelled there on the screen, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-M-A-G-E-E, jeffreymcgee.com. On there, you can sign up for a weekly sales article that I uh, provide to my customers, and we'll make that free to your viewers here today. Again, each week I write an article that is substantive. You can use it that second. It's not commentary. It's not about trends. It's very evergreen in nature. They want to know more about my books, audios, videos, or having me come in to speak or train. Everything's on that website. Second, the magazine Professional, performancemagazine.com. Again, professional, performancemagazine.com is a global magazine that deals with success. It's the only magazine on the planet that deals just with success, regardless of who you are. I have phenomenal global writers in each issue. Marcus is going to be in one of our upcoming issues as well. He's already given me his great content. And again, it's people that are very successful in their lane sharing in 500 to 1,000 words, ways to be more successful from that lane. It is phenomenal, the people that we've had written for our magazine. So those are the two ways. Thank you, Marcus. Brilliant. Jeff, thank you so much. If you have a message to say to CSOs and the C-suite, and you believe that you'd be a great guest on the podcast, please contact me at mcauchi at sandra.com. And if there's somebody that you think would be a great guest there and you'd like to introduce me, I'd really welcome that. So happy selling and go out there and be your best. Thank you very much. Thanks.